Welcome to Journeys in Podcasting, threading the teaching community within and beyond. This week, Natalia Leon interviews one of our third grade teachers, Rachel Krivik, about her innovation in the Soul Project, the self-organized learning environments, better known from Sugata Mitra's hole-in-the-wall research. Then, we'll research beyond with two experts in project-based learning, Joan Lerman of the Bog Institute and Paul Curtis of New Tech Network. This is all coming up today on this episode of Journeys in Podcasting. I am Diego Lopez. And I'm Chris Davis. Now, let's go to Natalia and Rachel's discussion. My name is Rachel Krevick. I'm a third grade teacher here at Colegio Nueva Granada. Um, I'm a homeroom teacher. I teach almost all subjects. Uh, and I tried to do something new in our social studies and science curriculum. And that's where I learned about the inquiry-based programs and tried to follow a different model than we normally follow here. What was your project about? Well, we've done two inquiry-based projects. One was about government, because that's our social studies curriculum, and one was about space. Um, because that was our science curriculum. All right, can you tell us a little bit about the type of project that you decided to make? Well, I actually was at home one weekend and I uh, was listening to TED Radio and I heard Sugat, uh, I think it's Sugata Mitra. He's a professor of educational technology in, um, I think, the UK. And he started a new program called SOUL, which is Student Organized Learning Environment. And um, I thought it sounded really interesting. It went beyond just static knowledge, beyond content, but more about skills. Um, and I just thought, wow, I really want to do something like this. I think it's important for kids to learn how to make questions and follow things they're interested in and make new knowledge, kind of. So um, I looked up things on the internet. Um, I read about it, and I tried to structure some sort of program, like an inquiry-based program in my classroom. I doubt it's perfect, and, and I'm still working out kinks in it, but it's just to try something new and different um, with the curriculum. Absolutely cool. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how it worked in your classroom, like a little bit about the process? Yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, I introduced, the first thing I did is I introduced the kids to what we were doing. So it wasn't like, oh, here, we're doing this, and it's all a mystery. I actually told them the whole story I just said. Um, to be really transparent with them, and I, I wanted them to realize that they're kind of in control of their learning, and um, and they can or they can be in control of the organization of the classroom, um, and that it would require some amount of maturity by them because they have to be uh, responsible for what they're learning. Um, so I started out with that. And then we worked on questioning. We, I gave them a little bit of background knowledge. My first unit was government. And I gave them background knowledge on it because some things, like if you're just like, write questions about government, they're like, what's government? So I gave a little bit of background knowledge. And then we wrote questions. Um, and we talked about open-ended versus closed questions. We did a lot of work like on that. And the kids really understood it. And then we started to work on open-ended questions for um, government. For example, what if all the governments were the same in the world? Um, uh, what is the Best government and things. Um, what what does socialism have to offer? And, you know, kids would come up with questions. After that, we grouped the questions more into um, into like different types of organization that they would fit together, like categories. And the kids did that. Then they choose they chose what group they would like to work in, and they went off and independently researched their questions, these open-ended questions. And then they got back together and they discussed what they found. And I thought it was really interesting because some kids had very different opinions about what they found or they found different information. Um, so they organized their information that they found. They debated about it. They talked about it. They worked together as a group to find more information. 
Um, and then they presented the information sort of as like projects. Some did skits, some did models, some did um, PowerPoints, things like that. They had choices of how they wanted to present. Um, the second project was on um, space. And it actually went, I think, a little bit better because the students um, uh, had an idea of what they were doing. So it wasn't like I was introducing something new. And I think every time you teach something, it gets a little bit better because you work out kinks a little bit. Um, and they chose to not work. They worked as groups to do research, but they did it. They went through the whole process and they worked as groups to do the research, but they wanted to individually present. So once again, they had choices of how they wanted to present. I actually said they could do about anything, but I did give them options because if I just say do anything, some of them will be like, I don't have any idea. So I did give options. Um, and I got prezzies and PowerPoints and models and plays and um, posters and a, a wide range of things for that. Um, we're going on into a new project about the tundra, about biomes, um, and we're going to do the same sole student organized learning environment. So we're just right now starting with background knowledge, and then we'll come up with questions. And how does it work, like um, regarding management inside the classroom, how does it work for the students to self-monitor and uh, be able to be uh, looking forward to learning what you expect from them? Well, what I did is that we, once again, I introduced at the beginning like what we were doing and then I required a certain amount of maturity because they're gonna be kind of independent, right? Mm -hmm. And responsible for themselves. So after each session that we would have, like, an, um, be able to work on this, this sole project, uh, we would reflect. And we would say what things worked, what didn't, things didn't work. And they were really honest. Like, this kid sat the whole time, right? Or I did all the work or something. So we tried to do a lot of reflection about that. Of course, is it perfect? No. But the reflection part kind of helped the kids realize how to stay on track. Um, and I'm monitoring, I'm going around the class all the time, and, and so is my co-teacher, and we're checking in when, on groups and things like that. I mean, I would say, you know, a good, a high percentage of students are doing really well in it. And is it 100% successful? Well, no, because some kids have a hard time with such freedom or autonomy, do you know what I mean? Absolutely. But, I mean, it's, it's working out, and they're learning from others, too. And regarding assessment, how did you feel? Assessment is a hard part of this, I think. Especially in a program like our school is very standard and benchmark based. So, And also they want common assessments. So that is a hard aspect about this. Um, I, I, one of the hard things that I grapple with a little bit is the assessment piece. What I tried to do is come up with a rubric that I could use to do the final um, assessment, like when they were doing the projects. And, and basically, it was like, did you present novel information? Did you research? Um, is your, your uh, information organized? Did you cover an open-ended question? Um, so I tried to make the rubric that general enough to cover all top, like projects. Um, that's something that's difficult. One thing that I really loved, and this isn't really necessarily about assessment, but I thought this was really cool. After we were done with all of our projects, we did another round of open-ended questioning. And the kids, after we did all the presentations, they had more questions almost than they did before. We didn't have time to, um, to start a whole new project because we, we have curriculum. So I had to go on. But I really tried to talk to them about how that is learning, you know, to, to have new questions to go to research and to, to find answers for or something and um, that was really interesting I thought that after there was even more questions so, so you definitely see that there was um, an impact and motivation regarding student using student inquiry in your classroom mm -hmm. and instead of just focusing on information content they also learn skills and, and and just different ways of thinking about things I think 
What would, you, what would you say are some of the highlights of using student inquiry in your classroom? Well, just kind of like what I said, that they like learn, a new, they learn new skills, they um, debate a little bit more. These questions are open-ended, so there's not necessarily like a right answer. Um, they learn from each other. Um, I love that they had more questions at the end because that's the whole goal is to make them kind of people that want to keep learning and finding new answers, and, and that's interesting. Um, and I think it's not static. It's not so boring. Like, we're going to take this out and take notes and then take a test on that. It's They find different information and they get excited about it. And I think that's neat. Um, so, yeah, I think those are kind of the highlights. And on the other side, what could be some of the major setbacks besides assessment being a little bit difficult? One of the, the besides assessment, one of the difficult things is that in third grade, they're about eight or nine. And they it's hard for them to learn how to research. So I actually spent about a week um, teaching them how to research a little bit and just the parts of if you open a Google page and what happens when you put something in Google, you know, and, um, because they are pretty knowledgeable about using technology, but as far as research is concerned, it's finding, like digging deeper and finding really good research um, was is hard for kids, I think. Also in on a page, like if you wanna say what government, they'll write what government is best, right? Mm -hmm. And they don't realize that when they pull that up, there's gonna get a lot of like propaganda or you know things that aren't necessarily true. So that's hard to teach kids as, as well. But it's also like their third grade. Maybe if we start now and I start teaching them and little by little, by fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, they're going to be really savvy on how to find good information. Absolutely. So do you think that this would be a good um, methodology to implement? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, definitely. Would it be okay? Would you feel comfortable implementing this on lower grades? I would. I think it would be really great if it were cross-curricular more because with our the way that our school is, it would be very hard right now to implement, I think, in, in math, for example, right? So I think if this was going to be like something that we were going to do in our elementary grades, it would have to be something that would be more global, do you know what I mean? Not something just like one subject, one teacher. Um, and that would kind of be a paradigm shift for our school, I think. So I think that might be a, t a hard thing to tackle, but I, would, I think it would be really great and interesting if that was set up and we had support for that, it would be awesome. And as a teacher, what do you think you've learned from implementing Soul? Um, okay, so I think like one of the things that I've learned is that kids can do these things. They can research and they can find information and come up with really great questions. Um, I also learned that it's important to set up the skills that they need to be able to do it, right? Because you can't just be like, here's an iPad and get a question, you know, especially at this age. So I think it's good to set up a little bit um, some skills that they could use and then let them go with that a little bit, right? And um, I think it's really interesting to see kids debate and kind of find different answers within themselves or, or learn about new things from other kids. All right, Rach. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. Mm -hmm. Now let's listen to segments of Sugata Mitra's TED Talk about the Hole in the Wall project. What is going to be the future of learning? The schools would produce the people who would then become parts of the bureaucratic administrative machine they must be identical to each other. They must know three things. They must have good handwriting, because the data is handwritten. They must be able to read, and they must be able to do multiplication, division, addition, and subtraction in their head. They must be so identical that you could pick one up from New Zealand 
and ship them to Canada, and he would be instantly functional. The Victorians were great engineers. They engineered a system that was so robust that it's still with us today. Continuously producing identical people for a machine that no longer exists. And I said, in nine months, a group of children left alone with a computer in any language would reach the same standard as an office secretary in the West. I'd seen it happen over and over and over again. Future. Encouragement seems to be the key. If you look at Kuppam, if you look at all of the experiments that I did, it was simply saying, wow, saluting learning. <laughs> so what's happening here? I think what we need to look at is we need to look at learning as the product of educational self-organization. If you allow the educational process to self-organize, then learning emerges. It's not about making learning happen, it's about letting it happen. The teacher sets the, the process in motion, and then she stands back in awe and watches as learning happens. I think that's what all this is pointing at. Up next is our in-house research with John Larnum of the Buck Institute. Why, um, why projects and, and what role inquiry plays in those projects? Okay, well, uh, nice to be here, to join you guys here today. Hello, everybody. Uh, why projects? Well, we think that that's the 21st century way to learn. I mean, people in the real world work on projects all the time. Uh, the kind of skills you develop in project-based learning, uh, you know, learning how to work in teams, how to think critically, solve problems, be innovative. Those are all you know, so-called 21st century skills that the modern workplace demands and colleges uh, like to see in students. And uh, the biggest thing for me, though, is just uh, school's boring without uh, interesting work like, like inquiry and projects. Uh, I mean, I taught high school, and I did my share of lecturing. And, you know, I was an okay lecturer, and some people are better than others. But, you know, that's not really the best way for people to learn. And today's kids especially are so used to being connected and, uh, you know, using tech tools and um, engaging more personally in their learning. They're just going to sit there passively and absorb information like the old days. So putting tools in the hands of kids, having them explore meaningful questions to them, solve real-world problems, I mean, that's an engaging way to teach. Okay, so um, one of the things that I'm always sort of wondering about is um, when you do an initial, an, initiate a field of study or unit of study, um, can you kind of compare across the spectrum of inquiry-based learning like teacher-driven inquiry um, compared to student-driven inquiry? Yeah. Uh, well, we often sort of advise teachers who are just starting out with project-based learning uh, or problem-based, both, both PBLs. Um, uh, we advise to sort of start out maybe with the teacher directing the project a little more. And with younger students, you might have to do that more than older students. But as students get more experienced or with older students, they can do a lot of the directing of the project themselves. They can think of their own questions for inquiry, uh, their own driving question for a project. But at first, I think it's good for teachers to design a project, and you still leave room for student voice and choice. We think that's one of the essential elements of project-based learning. So the teacher might sort of have a, a general idea of what, how the project's going to go, and even mapped out the days. Um, the teacher would plan 
you know, what the, what the goals are in terms of uh, outcomes for learning uh, standards or history content, literature content, what have you, 21st century competencies. And then uh, the teacher would plan, you know, the general framework for the project, what the, how it's going to be launched, what the driving question is, what the major products are going to be. You could give students voice and choice there, and they might create different products. You know, some students might want to create a, a, a movie. Some might want to do a podcast. Some might want to do a live performance or something. It gets trickier to manage if you have a lot of different products like that. But um, the basic idea is that, that, uh, that students investigate a real question that matters to them or that they, they at least feel like it matters. You could have a, a question that's not fully you know, authentic, like, uh, you know, who, who, uh, what was the major cause of the Civil War? Okay, that's not authentic to a kid today, but um, you could put students in the role of, you know, Congress people in 1861 trying to debate it. So they sort of buy into the scenario. But the really powerful kind of inquiry is when students are investigating a problem that really matters to them. So something in their community, you know, how can we uh, clean up the, the lake in our town from the pollution? How can we uh, express our feelings about growing up in a creative way? You could have all kinds of personal and community connections for projects. And then if, if that can drive the inquiry, uh, students really own it. So if they think of questions they want to investigate. The teacher helps, you know, shape their questions. The teacher helps um, make sure that their questions are going to lead them to learn the material that needs to be learned. Um, but uh, students then generate questions, you know, right, right from the get-go. They can generate the uh, initial list of questions, what we call a need-to-know list, or it could be a, one of those KWL charts, what you know, wonder, and learn. Uh, and then you add to that at various points during the project. So asking questions, finding answers, digging deeper, sort of a spiral of inquiry, that's at the heart of every good project. And like theoretically, why is that so important? I mean, I recently reviewed uh, John Dewey's Child in the Curriculum, going back to some of the kind of the more basic root stuff. And like, but theoretically, why is that so important for the child to project their question out? Well, it's, uh, for one thing, it's motivating. If, if they feel like they're just answering somebody else's questions all the time, they're just passively learning what the teacher says they should learn. Um, I mean, they might do it. Students are cooperative, especially younger students. They like their teacher, want to make their parents happy. As they get older, it's more about grades and getting into college or the next grade level in school. But those are kind of, um, those extrinsic motivators are not very powerful, at least for a lot of kids, compared to intrinsic motivation. So if you really want to solve a problem or create some personal expression uh, in a project, you're more motivated to learn. So um, that's what I think is the, the main uh, argument for inquiry. Um, also, I think um, it's a deeper way to learn. And the research does show this, too, that when students learn in project-based learning, they retain information longer. Uh, there's an emotional connection to the information. You know, they've, they've gone through this project. It matters to them. They make a presentation in front of an audience, perhaps. It's a high-stakes event, um, that kind of learning really sinks in. Um, and, so, and so when you own it and when you explore it deeply, uh, you're going you're gonna to learn information a lot better and you're going to care more about what you're learning. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we have some new faces in the back. Um, some of our, our, our heads, our bosses are, are back here. This is Julie Hunt, um, our, our elementary principal. Hi, Julie. 
It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm sure you guys have seen the projects you've done already. It sounds like, from what Chris says, that how students are, are fired up about a good project. Um, I mean, they can be fired up by, I mean, a really good traditional teacher fires up kids, too. I mean, you know, Robin Williams and Dead Poet Society, the movie, you know, okay, he can, he can inspire kids, but not every teacher is Robin Williams standing <laughs> on top of the desk. And it shouldn't be the teacher's job to, you know, entertain kids. I think the real way to motivate kids is to give them real tasks that matter either for their, their world, the community, or themselves personally. Absolutely. Can I add one thing? Yeah. I don't know, John, if you agree with me, but I feel, I don't know if I can get my head in there. I'll just talk. Yeah, I think it this way. Not very well said over here. Asking inquiry questions also creates um, and strengthens the cross-curricular ties. Right. That when students are asking their own questions and, and Providing inquiry and, and participating in inquiry, it's creating cross-curricular ties that, for me, actually have come from a project-based school, and I went to the Bucks um, World Training in Napa. So, um, so it, it seems to me like the cross-curriculum is also really important, and, and asking inquiry allows the kids to even create the ties and the links to their own personal lives because usually they are interested about things that have to do with themselves. And so opening it, opening them up to inquiry allows them to create that naturally and then strengthening. And the big part of me for projects is the cross-curriculum, is the fact that all of the different subjects are linked and it builds the strength and it builds the learning and it builds the retention. Right, right. That's great. That you're, that's a good point about cross-curricular connections because a, a really good driving question for inquiry and a project does it requires a perspective, perhaps, of different disciplines, and students obviously have to, have to read and write and perhaps do math in a project that might be about social studies or, or science. But um, I'm glad you're saying that because some elementary school teachers these days, uh, at least in a lot of states in the, in the U.S., you know, feel like they have to do a literacy program for two hours every morning and it's locked in, and then a one-hour math program, and to deviate from that can get them in trouble. So it's an, um, Unfortunate aspect, I think, <laughs> over it. <laughs> interesting. But if you can find what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, it sounds familiar so, or it sounds uh, ridiculous? <laughs> well, I mean, we have a, the TC program here for reading and writing, and, and we yeah. follow that pretty closely. Um, we, what we're doing, I think, now, and um, the person to my right behind here can, can chime in if I'm wrong, but uh, basically playing with the social studies and sciences and trying to frame a lot of our content and reading and writing through that, which in your book seem, seem right. right along the lines with what you guys recommend. Um, and then working with Natasha, one thing that she's kind of reminded me of and helped me with as well is finding, when you're bridging things, to find those symbolic forms between the disciplines. So that if you're working with um, art and science and math, uh, we use the Fibonacci spirals, for example. That's a common you know, uh -huh. bridge that you can apply to many things. Is that a common thing you recommend to look for, is those kind of uh, symbols that go across different expressive forms, or am I talking way out of line? No, I think that's great. I mean, I would call that sort of that's fairly advanced uh, practice. Um, uh, I think that there, those kind of projects that have some sort of symbolic link between subject areas, or um, or you know, the product requires different subject areas expertise in different areas to create a product. I think those are really powerful. They are more complicated, though, for teachers. I mean, we sometimes 
I mean, those are so that kind of thing is great, but we often advise people who are starting out or or some teachers perhaps you can be a little less ambitious and find just a, a more practical kind of product, which still requires inquiry. It's not a symbolic, you know, it's a thematic kind of project. And maybe it's just a sim it's a simpler structure where students are oh, I don't know, like I said, proposing ways to clean up the, the pollution in their local community lake. Um, or creating a you know a, a video to express their answer to the question, when do we grow up? You know, some kind of abstract question like that. Um, those kind of projects that are a little bit more um, concrete, I guess you'd say, they're focused on a particular product or a particular uh, task or problem to solve. Those are a little more approachable for some teachers. But but yeah, Chris, if you can get to that symbolic level and find find those kind of connections around subjects, I think that's great. Hmm. Absolutely cool. Well, I was wondering, as a self-contained, um, I'm a third grade teacher, and I was wondering that sometimes we we struggle a little bit with math, how to include math into um, our projects in a very specific way. And I was wondering if you could maybe point out some uh, useful resources or a source of inspiration where us um, maybe younger uh, practitioners uh, can be inspired. Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, math is a tricky one. and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, there is a website called mathalicious.com, but it's not for early elementary. It's more middle school. Mm -hmm. uh, Mathalicious, and they've got some great uh, inquiry-style math units. Some of them, actually, they've created lar larger units that became projects for us. Um, on our, our, our spin-off website, pblu.org, has some projects, uh, PBLU. Org. And there's some projects there you can download for free, and some of those uh, are for early elementary and include math. They're typically not math alone projects. They're math integrated into some, into, with, you know, with some science or something. Um, so it's, um, and there are, if you look at our project search tool at BIE.org, on our website, you can search by subject and grade level and, and find lots of examples there. Um, so um, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a math expert, I can't rattle off, you know, six dozen other websites, but some of the ones you'll see on our project search will link to other organizations, project libraries, and there you can find a lot of examples of projects. Mm -hmm. um, typically, they're, they're linked to science. You know, students are, are doing experiment, like they're designing a little first grade project I heard about where the kids are making sailboats and figuring out, you know, what's the best way to make a sail so the wind power will go fastest. There's a lot of calculating and that kind of a thing. Um, and there are other projects where you know kids raise money for various causes. That's a classic project, and, and you know use math and arithmetic to keep track of their funding and all that. Um, another typical product uh, project is the you know having running a little business or running a uh, like in, in our our book uh, PBL for the elementary grades. We talk about the, the pizza and the world of work project where the kids ran a little pizza restaurant in their in their second grade classroom for two days. And you can imagine lots of math in that kind of a project. Um, I have a question more about you know just kind of a general design. One thing I looked at when I looked at your project cycle is, is you know it's kind of used it as a checklist to go through like which parts of these are we using, which parts can we you know beef up and do more of. And I really like this idea of the driving question and then having a clear idea of what the problem you're solving or what the product you're producing is. Um, as far as these immersion type activities to spark more inquiry in the kids, I, I've looked at um, Notosh. I don't know if you're familiar with these guys. Uh, they're, they're from England, but they, they do a lot of the design, design thinking. 
And so one thing they do is like show a video in silent without volume, and the kids have to narrate the video, and then they do inquiry after that. So do you have any other good examples of like just what great immersion activities are just to spark interest in a topic? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, with older students, you might be able to just we, we call that an entry event. That's what we our, our name for what launches a project and sparks that inquiry process. Uh, with older students, you know, having a, a guest speaker come in, having a, a piece of correspondence, a letter from local city council, you know, please help us figure out ways to improve traffic flow around uh, our community. Um, so an authentic piece of correspondence, a guest speaker, you could show a video or a film. Uh, with younger students, though, we recommend a, sort of a longer, like a good term for it, immersive activity, because they may not instantly understand what the what the task is calling for them to do, and may not have much of a context for what the project is about. So give them a couple of days, perhaps, to um, immerse themselves. Like the one uh, I mentioned, the Pizza and the World of Work project, the kids talk to people in their family and folks, folks at home and friends, older friends, adults, about their work. And so they spend a lot of time just sort of interviewing people about what it was like to work. And from that then, the kids began to explore the question of what does it mean to work and went out to their community and talked to people who ran pizza businesses and began to put their own ideas together for their own pizza business. So, um, so with younger students, I think field trips, I think um, personal explorations or family explorations of the topic first are a good way to, to get them started on the inquiry path. Um, I mean, guest speakers can work too, though. I mean, our, our um, kindergarten project in that book I mentioned, uh, The Creatures of Oldham County, a, a woman from the local county nature center came into the kindergarten classroom and said, you guys, we need help getting a, a good picture book for young children visiting our nature center, so please help me make it. And so, uh, and that's pretty powerful, having a real, you know, a real live person outside of your teacher come into your classroom. Or a school I worked, I know, uh, I know about in uh, San Jose, California, Catherine Smith Elementary. They, they're a great school, PBL school, K through six, and um, we have a lot of videos from them on our website. Uh, they had a, a first grade project uh, called Stray Stray Go Away, where the local animal control uh, agency sent a representative to the, to the classroom and talked to the kids about stray animals. And so the kids tried to solve the problem of stray animals in their community. But it, it took that experience of, they actually had the guest speaker come and then went to the animal shelter and saw the animals. And so they really understood the problem or, you know, the task they had to do um, from firsthand experience, not just being given this, uh, this task by a teacher. Hmm. And, that, and that typically what that does, that, that sort of launches, you know, the inquiry process. After that, students have questions. At first, they may not have very many, but you give them an immersive experience like that or have some powerful guest speaker. I like your example of the video. How would you narrate it? That, that sounds like a pretty engaging, assuming the video is engaging for the age group, that'd be a pretty powerful way to launch a project, too. I gotta make sure it's engaging for the kids, not just for the teacher who thinks it's a good one. <laughs> no, I think the strategy was, was to just uh, put them in a situation where they're forced to project themselves into what the topic is. So you're, you're not just uh -huh. the video passively, but they actually have to produce you know, the narrative for the video. So then when they go oh. to study the video, they already have the, the questions kind of built up about what it's about, so to speak. Um, that, that actually launched a project? That wasn't the final task. That was the beginning. No, we just used it. I mean, we just launched a project this week, um, and part of the project is the, they're studying biomes, but they, they want to study what they can do as third graders in their behavior of water consumption that might affect. Columbia is a water paradise. They have all their hydroelectrics built here, but there are also water crises in places like the desert regions. And so what they're studying is 
um, their water footprint, so to speak. And so they study the plates of food in the cafeteria, how much food they leave on the plate, and what that actually means in gallons of water, so to speak. So we, we showed them a video about water, and just using the graphics and the imagery, they have to build up uh, a narrative to it, and then we watch the video, and then we build questions from there. So by the time we get to the question building, they already have this kind of spontaneous experience about the topic already. Uh-huh. That sounds great. And the kids were engaged by that task? They, they got into it? Yeah. Uh, it, it's really surprising. I mean, I, I don't know if it's a cultural thing, but, but here they really enjoyed talking about the topic before we actually got, got to the topic. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and no, that's something I came up, uh, I was at the BLC, I don't know if you know this conference in, in Boston, but uh, at the BLC a couple of years ago, and this group Notosh was presenting on design thinking. And this was, for me, one of the entrances to you know, looking at different project formats was like they already had pre-thought all of these things that we were trying to work out. So then we started reading more, and that, that brought us to you as well. I know you guys have kind of an extensive, extensive blanket across the states of, of different schools that you work with, and you've already thought out a lot of these things. Um, so you know, looking at your project cycle, there were a couple of pieces that I was like, oh, well, we could really improve on. You know, making we, we have the clear audience set in um, the driving question, for example, and making sure all teachers understand what the driving question is about and why that's so important in framing a unit of study. So, and then, you know, kind of revisiting. The, the parts that we're trying to build in more is this sort of like student reflection, um, building in these kind of prototype loops so that when, they, when the kids produce something, there is kind of um, a reflection on it, students are able to question it, and how to use student inquiry in, in those particular points. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. Um, the, the need to to reflect during a project is very closely tied to inquiry. Actually, in our new model of um, the essential elements of project-based learning, which you haven't seen yet, we're just developing this new thing we're calling the gold standard for project-based learning with a rearranging of some of our essential elements for PBL that you've seen already. And we put inquiry with reflection as one of the elements. Because John Dewey even said that, that you need to you know, step back and reflect as you dig deeper and ask questions and find answers and you step back and reflect and then you might ask deeper questions or revise your product in a project or something. So we put inquiry and reflection right together on our new diagram for gold standard project-based learning. Um, Chris, maybe it's a good time for me to show that graphic now um, that I shared with you. Um, are you. Are you in control of that or is that... Yeah, let me do a screen share. Okay. This kind of explains... Oh, sorry, before you start, I think there's one question here um, behind me. Sorry, um, this might sound like a really basic question, but I'm a third grade teacher as well, and um, I've been trying to explore inquiry-based learning, and one thing that I find challenging is once we get to some essential questions or deeper level questioning, the research is actually quite hard because the research requires deeper level research, and the kids aren't familiar with that. It's, it's something that's very difficult. It's a basic, it's, it's a skill they haven't had yet. Do you have any suggestions on how to teach the actual research part for that? Um, no, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's a tricky one. Now, having not taught elementary, I, I can't sort of rattle off how I would get kids to learn research skills. But, I mean, some of the tips in our book, I mean, my co-author, Sarah Hallerman, was the elementary school teacher uh, in, the, in the pair of us authors, um, you know, keeping keeping research journals where you, you keep track of your sources and what you're finding, and then you have a column, you know, like a three-column chart, what your source, your information, and then your questions or reflections in the third column. Um, some of that has to be teacher-guided. I mean, you, you, you can model that with, you know, the workshop model where you can demonstrate how to read a source and take notes on it and then ask a deeper question about it. You know, teacher modeling, 
the workshop model is good. Um, you could teach some of those skills before a project. I mean, some some teachers want to do it all in the context of the project, but others might say, "Okay, let's let's learn some of these some of the parts before we put it to get together into a whole project." So you could have you could sort of pre-teach how to do research before you launch a project. That'll save you some time once the project starts. If kids say, "Okay, I know how to do this. I I know what this note-taking guide." how this works, I can use that now in the project. Um, so that, that's some of the scaffolding you provide students. Mm -hmm. um, modeling, scaffolds. So that's all. That's kind of general advice. Sorry, I couldn't be more specific. No, but I, I think that's a common problem that when you open that can of inquiry, that the inquiry can often spiral out into so many different areas that, that the kids aren't actually prepared to go and find answers for. So I, strategies that I, I've looked at is sort of affinity grouping questions into kinds of questions into thematic questions right. then, then we can just kind of take one section at a time because it can get disorienting when the questions just come flying in but we don't really have strategies for, for dealing with a lot of this. Um, yeah, with with the, organizing your list of questions into categories or affinity mapping is a great yeah. idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have one more question uh, that I would like to ask you before we move on to our slides. I'm so sorry. Um, I was wondering what strategies uh, you would suggest to drive students to um, to spiral them towards deeper uh, or more abstract type of questions, especially for us, which you know we're early elementary. So um, sometimes it's hard to get them from the literal questions to a deeper or more abstract questioning. Hmm. Yeah. That's. Um it depends. I mean, some students aren't quite, you know, their their minds aren't quite developed in an abstract level yet, so you may not be able to get there. Um, uh, I might advise not trying to get too abstract with kids who are too young. Yeah. Uh, but again, this, this, I guess the best best thing you can do is just model, uh, you know, think aloud, uh, model how you might ask questions about something, and you might, you know, show them what a you can't use words like concrete and abstract, but you know, yeah. have some labels for the different kinds of questions. Maybe you have a one, two, three level question. Just mm. give kids lots of practice on on how to ask questions at different levels, uh, and start off with some simple examples, not some complicated project, but just some simple example. Like if you wanted to ask questions about you know a butterfly, what's what's a, a level one, a level two, a level three question? I don't know. So, that kind of simple scaffolding to start. That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, so some of this, some of these questions might relate to this diagram I'll share too. So let me. This is a, a little screen share here. Okay. This is a. Can everybody see that? This is a our, our project path. So um, this appears in our uh, PBL uh, 101 workshop and. So in our books, nice. this kind of describes how inquiry works in a project. And um, uh, on the left are what students are thinking about, the kind of questions they're asking in different phases. And on the right is how teachers can support the inquiry process. We've already, we've already touched on some of this. So um, at the beginning, the teacher is the one who's setting up the project and the driving question, the entry event, and so forth. And the question list uh, is started, and students are thinking more about, you know, what do I need to know for this project? Why is this important for me? Uh, who are we going to be sharing this with? What's my are we going to be presenting this or sharing it publicly somehow? Then you start digging deeper, and the next phase is when students are starting to gather knowledge and skills and understanding the content to be able to answer that driving question and create their product. And their students are inquiring about um, the information they're getting. What's 
Can we trust this? What resources can we use? Um, what's my role? They're thinking also about their own role in the process of the project, their own role on a team or something in the project. Uh, and the teacher there is helping students um, by helping them facilitate uh, and evaluate the resources they're getting. And then the third phase is when the products begin to be created, and that's where students are thinking about, okay, now, now the questions are, how can I apply this to this product? Is my product going well? Do I need to revise it or I get some critique and revision going on there? Uh, do I have more questions now? Do I have to go back to the drawing board? Do I need more information? Do I have to maybe see if my product is working with its intended audience? Uh, and the teacher is facilitating that process. And finally, the presentation, where students are inquiring about their audience and the format and how to best share what they've learned. So that's our basic sort of model of how a typical project unfolds and how inquiry goes throughout. And it's not, so it's not just inquiry into the content, it's also inquiry into the process, inquiry into who their audience is, inquiry into how to create the best possible product, perhaps the best possible video recording or the best possible song or new, new invention, whatever it is they're creating. So there's all different, different forms of inquiry in a project. Okay, I'll go back to the main screen. <laughs> and we're back. All right, we're back. Um, oh, I'm, I'm going to have to click down. over here. Hold on. Well, we've lost you. Are you still there? No, I'm still there. Oh. I still see you. <laughs> I'm not sure what to click here, but... Um, oh, I don't want to do that. Maybe the screen share problem. Let me go back to that. Okay. Um, well, a couple of questions I had just kind of laying out in the background. One was uh, you mentioned a couple of the examples and uh, of good places to go for examples of good projects that have been done. I know you guys on your website have a library there as well. We've looked at um, High Tech High, um, which has some lower level stuff too. Do you have any other recommendations of where we should go just kind of looking for examples for K-5 through kind of projects? Yeah, uh, the expeditionary learning schools are really good. Have you heard of them? No. Expeditionary Learning, or EL for short. Uh, they're a network of schools, and um, they are mostly in the elementary world. Um, and they have these things they call expeditions, which are kind of like um, long units of study around a certain topic. And within it might be two or three what we would call projects. So uh, like a 12-week expedition to explore um, oh, some issue like homelessness in their community or something. And so students would investigate that and read about it and write about it and do field work. And then it might be a couple of projects within a 12-week expedition, expedition. Excuse me. Uh, so they, so and they have a good um, set of projects. I believe their library is open source, or at least you'd find lots of examples from their website. So expeditionary learning. I forget the exact website. It's a .org. And they're, um, they're, uh, one of their leaders is Ron Berger. Have you heard of him? He's a, a real guru of, of experiential learning and, and project-based learning. He wrote a great little book called An Ethic of Excellence. Uh, okay. uh, Berger's B-E-R-G-E-R. -E and An Ethic of Excellence is a short little thing. It's just it's barely 100 pages. And um, it really talks about how the need for students to think about and, and do quality work in schools, not just quantity. Really take time to create a, a good quality product. Uh, that they're proud of, like a book of their poetry, or you know, a really well-produced uh, video that goes up on a public display about their something in their community. 
um, where students can take pride in their work. And it kind of goes against some of the grain these days of having to cover a lot of material and you know the fast pace of covering standards. What he's advocating is slowing down and going deeper and doing really high quality work. So it may not fit some schools' needs, but I think uh, it's a great message nonetheless. His colleague um, at Exhibition and Learning, when he was a teacher at an elementary school in the 90s, actually had the kids build the furniture. They came into an empty room and the kids <laughs> planned and built furniture for their classroom and learned math and reading and science and all this stuff, not to mention you know, how to use tools. And that, that's on the, the super ambitious, progressive side of project-based learning. I wouldn't recommend that for everybody. <laughs> well, uh, just like uh, tied to that, I was um, reading one of your articles earlier, and um, you mentioned that it's really easy to tie Common Core assessment with project-based. I mean, there are different ways to do it, of course, um, and I was very happy to, see, um, to read that. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk uh, a little bit about um, the setbacks and maybe the highlights of doing so. Okay, uh, yeah, I think project-based learning and the Common Core go very well together. I mean, the Common Core asks students to solve real-world problems in math and uh, think critically about what they read. Uh, the speaking and listening standards have a lot about making presentations and using media and knowing your audience. And, of course, the writing standards, uh, you, can, you can write persuasive, persuasive narrative or informational writing. Uh, the use of informational text in emphasizing the standards fits writing with project-based learning, obviously. There's lots of that kind of text uh, in a typical project. So um, to me, it's really easy to link the two. Um, the trick, as always, is kind of, um, it is, you know, assessment's a tricky one. You've got to make sure your, your assessments are aligned to the Common Core standards. So if they're asking students to you know, read critically in a certain way, you need to make sure you build some of those tasks into a project so that you can do formative assessment, how well students are doing. You can, you know, assess those standards during a project um, as long as you, the tasks in the project are very closely aligned with what the standards are asking. Um, I, a couple of questions. One, something you mentioned about Common Core and, you know, we're looking at ISTE standards uh, for student ISTE standards and there's 21st century learning standards. Um, there's a lot of overlap in a lot of these. Um, have you had to deal with that in any schools, like having to kind of condense that down to um, one set of standards? I know, I, I think you guys in your forums use 21st century learning skills. Um, yeah. Yeah, those those lists can be pretty pretty daunting. They're so long sometimes. We um, and the, the 21st century skills folks have um, been promoting the four C's in the last couple of years: uh, <laughs> critical thinking, communication, creativity, and collaboration. So they boil it down to those four. Um, we are in our new model of gold standard project-based learning. We're we're emphasizing critical thinking, problem solving, uh, collaboration. And we added self-management. That's kind of a new one for us. Still, communication was communication really covered by reading and writing standards and speaking and listening standards. We thought communication is kind of doesn't need to be separated as a 21st century skill. It's so built into English language arts standards. But self-management, uh, it's one of those things that you know a lot of. If you ask people what they hope a high school student can be when they graduate, that idea of being able to manage themselves, knowing how to learn, knowing how to be part of a team, knowing how to um, you know, pursue a task, stay organized. Those kind of skills are really great, really useful for the real world. So um, we're calling those the, the key competencies. 
but you're right. It's you can go crazy looking at those lists and figuring out what to um, what to target. So I would I would advise emphasizing just three, four, maybe five at a school, and you do those three or four or five across a whole school and make that your theme. That's what Catherine Smith Elementary does in San Jose. They they do the four C's. What's the name of the school again? I'm sorry. Catherine Smith. Catherine Smith. Catherine Smith Elementary. They're they're um, that's another good school you can contact. Uh, their principal is very active on Twitter, Aaron Brengard. Aaron Brengard, Catherine Smith, and I forget his Twitter handle. But um, if you go to their website, you can find videos. And they're a, 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 in a low-income part of San Jose, very diverse, mostly Latino and uh, Vietnamese kids, and. Uh, but they, they sort of follow our model. They're also uh, a new technology school. The New Tech Network, you might have heard of. They're mostly high school level, but New Tech is expanding a bit to elementary these days. Uh, and newtech.org is their, their website. Um, and so Catherine Smith is a member of that network, as well as one of our, our favorite schools. And uh, they share a lot of projects. Uh, we've got some videos. Um, for them, actually, that one I mentioned, the, the Stray Animals Project. Oh, it was kindergarten, not first grade. Uh, we have a great video of the kindergartners making a presentation to uh, parents at their open house in the spring about their Stray Animal Project. And we use that little video of these, these five-year-olds presenting to um, go along with our presentation rubric. I don't know if you've seen that rubric on our website, but we have some rubrics for different 21st century skills and presentations. Yeah, I've taken a look at a couple of those. Um, my last question, because I think some of these guys will have to scatter pretty soon when our lunch hour ends, but it's more about branding. And when you're sort of approaching this in a school that is this kind of school, or a TC school, or this, um, do you have any recommendations for sort of how to approach that so people don't just jump with the reflex of, oh, that's the Montessori approach, oh, that's the Reggio Emilia approach, oh, that's PBL? Um, how do you approach it in a way so people understand that this isn't a disruption, it's just a reframing of kind of things you're already doing? Huh, yeah, that's a great question because you don't want to just make it seem like it's this year's trendy thing you're doing or it's this whole new program. Uh, we like to say that a project, a project is sort of the, the, the vehicle that drives the curriculum, but within that there's lots of room for so-called traditional teaching. I mean, you still use a lot of the same lessons you used, or for a high school teacher, you might use some of the same lecture notes you used, but now it's in the context of a project. The students have a reason to listen to your lecture, or they, they understand the purpose of a, of a lesson or a worksheet or a piece of reading they're given, because it all kind of fits together under the heading, under this banner of the project. Um, and so um, I think it's, I, I think they're, um, there's a danger sometimes people think project-based learning is this, this whole new thing, and it really, it, it really isn't. It's, it's, um, it's also, I think, a way you can connect with parents and community and say, isn't this how you work on your job, and isn't this how people in the real world work? Um, and bringing you know, parents in to talk about their work and, and think about problems they solve on the job that could be you know, ideas for projects kids could solve. Um, we have some material on our website about that. There's a, a top ten list, I think, uh, reasons why teaching 21st century competencies with PBL is a good idea. That's a good parent uh, information sheet. Um, so I think uh, making it sound like it's not some new initiative that's going to take over everything else, it will just allow teachers to 
fit a lot of their existing good practice into this more motivating context for students. More tied to the real world, more tied to personal interests, and um, I think sharing videos, uh, it's hard, you can't go visit a lot of schools perhaps in your area, but um, you know, sharing videos of students doing project-based learning in action is a great way to sell it. Having Google Hangouts with the kids at Catherine Smith Elementary or something, that, you know, you'd be very open to that. You know, having, meeting other kids or other students, other parents who have uh, experienced success at project-based learning. All right, we'll be sure to contact them then. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Oh. Well, um, yeah. I really thank you for your time. We'll be we'll sure. be following, and uh, you know, hopefully, we'll join in some more of the Google Hangouts that you guys offer. I see you have something else coming up this week, uh, and definitely, we'll follow up with some of the literature as well. Do, do you all offer training and thing like things like that for schools, or is right. it yeah, we do. Yeah, we'll come out and do workshops for schools, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we've got a great uh, bunch of national faculty, we call them, our consultants who do workshops for us, and they're all grade levels, all subject areas, different kinds of experience. Some are actually still teachers and work in the summer. Some are just out of the classroom or former administrators who work during the school year. And um, we have uh, an online training called um, uh, well, the PBLU that I mentioned that has some, some mm -hmm. classes you can take in online virtual format. We're doing a PBL Academies event in Atlanta, Georgia in April, and then uh, where we have our PBL 101 workshop, the workshop we usually bring to schools. We're going to be hosting people coming to us in Atlanta for that. And then every June in Napa, California, as one of your colleagues said, uh, we have PBL World. Mm. That's, that's a great event. We have people from uh, all over the United States and different countries. Last year we had 12 different countries represented. Um, and they also attend. It's our PBL 101 workshop for three days. And then some other other topics for the, for the remainder of the year. So, well, we thank you for your time, John. You're welcome. We thank you for your time. I, I have to say goodbye, but thank you very, very much. So nice to meet you and receive some great, great input from you. All right. So, nice to meet you guys. Stay in touch. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye. Have a Next up, we'll have Paul Curtis of New Tech Network. Hi, my name is Paul Curtis. I um, am in Napa, California, where we had... Um, created a very unique high school called New Tech High uh, as part of a business development plan to really prepare students for the kinds of jobs they would face in the future. And I was one of the original teachers there. Uh, after the school was up and running for several years, we got um, a grant from the Bill and Linda Gates Foundation to replicate the model, help other schools adopt the kinds of principles and practices at New Tech espouses, and so now I am currently the director of curriculum of New Tech Network, which is a nonprofit group that supports schools in transformational change. It sounds amazing. Well, over here we're just uh, three people in Latin America in Bogota, Colombia. My name is Natalia. I'm a third grade homeroom teacher. And I'm Diego, I'm a technology teacher for elementary. And I'm Chris, and I help manage projects in third through fifth with a technology emphasis in the projects. Great. So I was wondering, Dr. Curtis, if you could start by telling us what makes uh, project-based learning schools successful. Okay, well, uh, first of all, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> I am just a lowly teacher who somehow ended up in this position. Um, uh, but um, uh, uh, repeat the question again, sorry. What makes uh, project-based learning schools successful? What makes them successful? Well, I, I think uh, project-based learning um, is a great way to teach. Project-based learning schools can be successful or unsuccessful depending on how they implement project-based learning. So 
Um, just to say you're a project-based learning school doesn't mean you'll be successful. Just like saying you're a traditional school will not make you successful or unsuccessful. What is unique about project-based learning is that it supports students in developing a deeper understanding of the content than most traditional approaches do. It all very important skills that the 21st century requires, such as critical thinking, problem solving, creativity, collaboration, and effective communication. So most jobs today require the use of technology, and people have kind of come to accept that now. And maybe not all schools are using computers every day, but most schools feel like they should be using computers every day, which wasn't the case a while back. But we still see a lot of students using technology in very remedial ways where they're doing digital worksheets online or, or just surfing the web for resources. So technology alone is not the real answer. What we really need to push kids to is, is understand how to take this vast amount of information that the web provides and make sense of it. In the old days, information was very scarce. Uh, you, had, you had an encyclopedia or some books in the library, and it took you a while to go find that information. And usually in education settings, that information was pretty well vetted, so you didn't have to worry about misinformation roaming around the libraries that schools were, that students were using. So today, though, when they go on the web, you can find a whole bunch of information, a lot of which is not very accurate, and um, it becomes overwhelming. So it's a very different problem that people face today as far as how to deal with information. We also see that technology is solving a lot of the problems for the lower level of um, Bloom's taxonomy. If I just want to know a fact or a figure, I can find it pretty quickly on the web. And so there isn't much use in uh, memorizing those facts if I know I can get them on the web nearly instantly. And we're seeing technology take over more and more of the responsibilities that we used to give to humans. In fact, um, if you've seen the Google car that can drive itself, um, the artificial intelligence is, is quickly catching up to us. And one of the challenges we're going to have as humans is figuring out what it is that we can contribute when robots are so quickly taking over many of the things we used to do. Modern factories today, uh, for an automobile, let's say, might be up to 50% uh, produced through a robotic uh, device. So what is it that you, that's uniquely human, that technology can't do yet? And that tends to be things like critical thinking, problem solving, collaborating, you know, deal, being creative, um, thinking outside the box. And so we can no longer just ask kids to memorize uh, facts and figures that they can quickly find on the web. We have to ask them questions that they can't find on the web that requires them to pull together information from many sources and, and, and solve something that's more complex than a computer can solve. For example, if I ask you to design a bridge, well, there's no single correct way to build a bridge. There's suspension bridges and girder bridges and floating bridges, all of which could be correct depending on what context the bridge needs to be in. There are also lots of examples of wrong bridges, right? If they fall down, that was a wrong bridge. So we're not saying that every answer is right. But what we want to do is to challenge students with questions where it isn't a simple answer that they can go look up. Um, something where they have to weigh pros and cons and look at lots of data points and decide, this is the thing I think is best, and then advocate for that position. So project-based learning opens the door for that. 
um, which is unlike a lot of traditional education, which is the teacher-centric approach of here's a bunch of information I'm going to share with you and I want you to feed it back to me in a way that's similar to how I presented it to you. Absolutely. Well, I was also wondering a little bit about um, the difference between project-based and problem-based. I read a little bit about in your site how you um, really work on problem-based learning in math. So maybe you can talk to us a little bit about that. Sure, and, and maybe to do that we have to talk a little about the difference between projects and project-based learning. A lot of teachers think they're doing project-based learning, but really what they're doing are they're adding in a project at the end of their teaching. And, and the real difference there is a, a traditional teacher's mindset is, I've got this neat project I want kids to do, but I have to teach them all of this content before I give them the project because they don't know how to do the project. And so you do all your traditional teaching where the kids don't really know why they're learning what they're learning, and then you throw them in this project at the end where they all of a sudden see the engagement and the reason to learn, and oftentimes they start asking you all the questions that you wanted to, them to ask you before, and now, now they see the connection. Project-based learning says forget about all that pre-teaching. Use the project to start the whole unit, and then as the kids are asking questions to solve the problem or project that you've given them, that's your opportunities to teach, and that's when you give lectures and readings and homework assignments and ask them to do research on the web, but it's all in service of solving this project that you've given them at the beginning. So it really is a shift in mindset about what the project is. It's not a dessert at the end. It is the core of how we teach. So when you get to problem-based learning, what we found in math, for example, is if you ask kids to make a video or design something, they spend an awful lot of time doing all the other stuff that don't involve math. It doesn't affect other subjects as much, such as social studies or language arts, because kids are having conversations and they're writing, which is important for literacy. But in math, there really is this importance where you're, they're spending a lot, a, lot, a lot of time in the math. So with problem-based learning, they tend to be shorter in scope, um, and they tend, um, uh, they tend to um, have more concrete steps on how they're going to get there. And so for us, having a big six-week project in mathematics with lots of open-ended ways for them to, to explore, um, what we found is that it just became really difficult to, to get through the material quickly enough. And we want them to be in the math a lot. So with projects, they're much more open-ended, uh, lots of student choice and voice that happen. And with problems, they tend to be much more short, maybe two or three days, four days. And the problems... Um, kind of have more of a concrete answer that you're expecting at the end. Want to ask something for a second? Yeah, um, just kind of looking at a, a project framework, like you were saying, where, where you're kind of addressing this one project problem and that frames the whole thing. I, I'm curious about how you um, launch it using student inquiry and then how you use student inquiry to revisit. Like when, is, when are the times to sort of use that in, the, in those prototype loops where the kids are demonstrating something, getting feedback, and then and going back at it, and how inquiry can also be used as a propeller during the project to keep it going as well. We train our teachers to um, use what we call the no-need-to-know list. And um, basically, um, this need-to-know list is the driver for inquiry. And at the very beginning of the project, the teacher will have some sort of launching event. Maybe it's a document that they're reading from, you know, an environmental group who has a problem they're trying to solve or um, someone is, you know, asking for short stories or whatever the, the project or problem is, there's some sort of entry or launch. Maybe it's a guest speaker who comes in and launches the project. 
But almost immediately what we do is we say, okay, what do we know about the problem? And they're going to list the facts. Some of them are like due dates and how long the paper has to be or something like that. But other, others are uh, things that they already have learned that they can apply to this situation um, or terminology that might have been used in the launch that they, that they know. And then we shift over, okay, what is it that you don't know? What do you need to know to solve this problem? And so they start asking a whole bunch of questions. And that's what we want. We, we believe that humans really only learn when they have a need to know. The so, project... Uh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, sorry I, just, I was just wondering. So in a way, this is um, some sort of KWL chart, right? So you're a KWL process. Correct. Um, very right? similar. Yes, very similar. And that, that need to know list drives what the teacher does. So even though I may want to teach them something, I try to wait as long as possible. I want them to get it up on their, know list, their need to know list so that it feels like I'm responding to their questions. And so my goal is to get them to ask the right questions. Um, so we'll do that at the end of the entry event, and then I'll show them the rubric that we're going to use to assess the project. And we'll look through that and go, okay, what are the things that you know? What do you need to know? Right? Um, and so we will revisit that every couple of days, that no need to the list, and we'll cross off the things that, that used to be on the need to know, and we'll move them over. But the kids will also discover that the more they learn, the more questions they have, and the deeper they want to go. And so me, I, I as a teacher, there are need to notes, as well as elicit more inquiry from them by asking them Socratic questions. So that's the formal process that we use to try to guide and, and, and um, expose the inquiry process. I was also wondering a little bit about um, the whole inquiry process. I mean, we use a lot of um, iPads to do research here at school. And if, especially with elementary kids, it's a little bit hard to focus them on the right type of information. Not only on the, type, um, the right type of sites that they should be looking into, but also like what is useful information for them to uh, help them answer those types of questions, which are not so literal. So what type of strategies would you suggest for us to um, maybe look out for or maybe that you've tried before? Yeah. I think um, I think that's really critical. Is um, sometimes when teachers take the leap of faith and jump into project-based learning, they um, they get uh, maybe over enthusiastic and let the kids have too much freedom. But it's really important to scaffold how much freedom the kids have because you don't want them just swimming around and being lost. And so, a lot of the techniques that we used to use in a traditional classroom still are very effective in a PBL classroom. For example, um, we kind of organize our uh, uh, projects into a project briefcase, we call it. But basically imagine a, 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 a Google Doc that has a list of resources that are really valuable that the students can have. So uh, we have a, a customized learning management system that, that houses that for us. But you could do it in any sort of document which says, hey, students, to answer this question that we put up on the board, here are four or five resources you might want to look at. And here's a, here's a practice sheet that has questions that we wrote up on the board for you to kind of write the answers and take your notes. So you can really help guide students' focus so that they're not wandering around the web aimlessly or you don't have a kindergartner jumping into a, a university paper uh, and trying to read something that's way above their, their reading level. Um, it makes sense for you to kind of help narrow their search and I think this scaffolding has to go in all sorts of things, not just on the, them learning the content, but you have to scaffold 
how they work as a group and support that, maybe by having them write contracts about how they're going to work together as a team um, and hold each other accountable. You might want to assign roles to individuals. For presentations, you should give them opportunities to practice their presentations and give feedback. Um, so we're not just scaffolding the content, we're scaffolding all the elements of a project so that the students are um, developing that skill. It's important, though, of course, that as kids get older, you remove some of that scaffolding. You help teach them how to do good searches and queries so that they can find it on their own without you finding those websites for them. So just as important as it is to build that scaffolding, you also need to bring it down. And lastly, I'll say, never underestimate the power of the teacher to pull ideas together. Sometimes kids will do research and find a whole bunch of bits and pieces, but they can't see the big picture of how that makes sense. And so uh, um, we train our teachers to use workshops, which are, tend to be small teams of kids that are coming over in their group, and we sit down with them and we say, okay, what have you figured out already? What do you, you know, what makes sense to you? What doesn't make sense? And have that dialogue in smaller groups to help them make sense of the information they're looking at. Now, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, we're, we're all in the elementary world, and so, you know, we get kids in third grade, and, and they're just bubbling with questions, and we've used kind of this division of Googleable and non-Googleable, um, you know, st uh, kinds of questions, which I think we pulled from Notash. And um, sometimes it can get overwhelming about all the questionings that kids come up with. And so what we're more looking at is kind of like affinity mapping or, or ways to manage all the questions themselves, because that can be a really disorienting process in itself, just bombarded with all the question kids come in with. What do you do with yeah. that? So, yeah, and it's what a wonderful problem to have, right? Kids, a natural state of inquiry. That's, that's, that means you've got them hooked and engaged. Um, uh, I, I can't name any specific tools. Um, we do have kind of within our learning management system a no-need-to-know manager, but, um, but it, 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 it makes a lot of sense to help kids uh, write those questions down in groups before you put it up on the board. You can have them uh, group their questions into big sets. Either you can define the, the, you know, the big chunks that they're going to group the questions into or let them do that. Maybe as they get older, they can do it better. Um, and then uh, a real important skill is prioritization. So have them make a list of their top five and, and share that with the class rather than the 50 that they came up with. That way, on paper, when they're working as a group, everybody gets validated because everybody's question gets put down. But then they have to go through a critical thinking process of prioritizing the top five or six that are the most important that they need to start with. That's fantastic. Well, it's, uh, now that you mentioned like, teamwork and collaboration, uh, I think uh, we saw some of your videos on the teaching channel. Mm -hmm. uh, we guys talk about that, and you especially mentioned how collaborating is one of the most valued uh, skills today uh, in the world, like any context. That's one of the key pieces that we need to start uh, giving the kids, uh, like providing them with, with those tools to collaborate and effectively work in teams. And you actually did mention some techniques uh, and how it becomes harder and harder as they get older for teachers, especially when you send the kids working groups and then there's one doing all the work and some, some, of the, some of them uh, are not. So you did mention some techniques like creating those rubrics in the class contracts and all that, checking meetings with the kids. But um, 
especially when you work with, with uh, elementary kids, how do you guys address like different learning types and, and how do you do like differentiation in, in the PBL context? Great questions. I think that is the challenge and it's why teachers might want to, you know, stay teacher centric and not have kids work in groups because they're always worried about the kid not working um, or the team not working well together and then the parent gets upset because the their kid's grade is being dragged down by some other kid. You know, there's all that dynamic that takes place that many teachers don't want to deal with to teach these with the effort. Um, so uh, lots of different strategies can come into play in helping them learn how to work in groups. One is you kind of have to set a norm in the classroom that, that if you are the kid who does all the work, um, that is not good collaboration. And so you will not get an A if you just do all the work for everybody else. That the real challenge is how to find what's valuable in every other student and get them to participate as best they can. So. Uh, uh, one of the simplest ways to do that is to give everybody a role and make sure that you're being very deliberate about who is doing what so that someone is responsible for that, that um, if it's a presentation or responsible for taking notes or collecting some research, that every kid has something that they're held accountable to and that you can track as a teacher, but also that the team kind of knows. Um, in some of our schools, and I'm not sure about elementary because they're kind of sensitive, but we've, um, we've allowed kids to fire uh, group members. <laughs> and so, but there's a very strict process on that. The kids have to write a contract at the beginning and say, here's, here's what we all agree to and here's how we're going to warn you. And the kids get better and better at writing these contracts with their teams, especially those type A personalities that really want to you know, do a good job. They, they, they learn to write language that really holds kids accountable. Um, <laughs> but, um, and then, uh, so, there might be a process for how a kid can be fired from a group, but usually goes through several stages of warnings. Um, and then the kid has to do it on his own. And there's all sorts of practices about how you make the groups, too. Um, in general, it's always best to have heterogeneous groups so that you're bringing lots of different personalities to the table and, and making kids work with others. But there have been times where I take many of the, the least motivated students and I put them all in a group together. Um, only because then they kind of look around and realize that there's no one here to do the work for them. Um, um, so I don't know if there's any silver bullets to this um, uh, other than um, to be very deliberate and thoughtful about it. And it, the more often you do it, the better they get. So you have the, the scary part is many teachers will try it, try to do projects, and then because it didn't work out, then they, they give up. Well, the kids will never learn that skill if you give up on them. The trick is... Uh-oh. Did we lose you? We lost you for a second yeah. there. But oh, okay. I, I back on now. <laughs> okay. So the part we didn't hear was you said... Um, the student will never learn if you give up, and then after that, we didn't we didn't follow the next part. Yeah, I said um, it's really important for you to to be monitoring, and you should even have um, a rubric about what good collaboration is, some sort of description, so that in the classroom, even if you, it's, this is a great thing to do with elementary, is have them write the rubric, 
that you are on the board say, okay, what is a what is a person who describe the things that you like to work with? A person who you like to work with. What are the characteristics? And what are the characteristics of someone who you don't like? Help them write that rubric so that you're really bringing that out of what they have learned by working with others. Um, and so, um, what you want to be doing as a teacher is constantly responding to that um, those issues because you want to give them an opportunity to teach. And you don't want to just like you don't want to let the kid who um, who is uh, lazy and not contributing get away with that. You also do not want to let the A student who's doing all the work get away with that because that he's not learning to collaborate. And so um, we, at the end of every project, have the kids evaluate each other on how they worked on our collaboration rubric. And so um, it's it, it was really difficult for high school because you had 130 students with four or five evaluations each. But in elementary school, it might not be as difficult where you've got your set of students. But having um, we, we built a digital tool where they give anonymous feedback to their group members so that they're getting that feedback constantly through our learning management system. That's fantastic. I was just wondering, I mean, a little bit to close up um, about assessment. Um, and thinking about specific roles that you uh, want to line up uh, for a group. And I was wondering if you would be more pro-group accountability or individual accountability or both of them at the same time. I mean, in regards to people actually responding as to what you were saying, you're not going to be the A student if you do all the work by yourself, but you have to work collaboratively with your group. So we don't yeah. want the slackers or the people who don't uh, want to work as much or who feel like they are not motivated by the uh, project, but we want everybody to be involved. So how does um, assessment come into place here to, let's see, let's say find like the sweet spot for us right. teachers? So I think you, you said it correctly that it is a balance of both individual assessment and group assessment. You, you as a teacher have a responsibility for making sure that all the students are learning what they need to know. And so you need to know what that student knows. And a lot of that can happen in very traditional ways, you know, giving quizzes, assigning individual work that everyone has to turn in. Um, and, and all of it's kind of tied to the bigger project they're working on, but still you're making sure that they understand what they need to know. Um, I, I'll, I'll also uh, maybe take a step back and, and let you think about um, how we do assessment in school, and this is where elementary tends to do a lot better than traditional uh, upper-level grades. Um, in a, it, it, usually what we'll, when a kid turns a paper into us, we will grade it on several criteria in our heads. We will grade on its content, on how well it's written, uh, what it was turned in on time, and so if a kid turns a paper in late, we tend to ding them in points. And so if it was a B plus paper and turned in late, now it's a C minus, and we put a C minus into the grade book for that paper. But really, we've we've muddled all those grades together. What we want to be able to say is, here's how well you know the content. Here's how well you write. And here's what your work ethic was like. Did you turn it in on time? Was it the correct number of pages? And we want to keep those grades separately. And so um, it, collaboration is a skill that we grade separately, and it shows up in their transcript basically as a separate grade. So our kids, when they look at the grade book, it says, here's how well you know the math. Here's how well you work with others. Here's how well you collaborate. Uh, much like an elementary uh, uh, grade book that is measuring um, different facets, you know, all the character skills that we, we do in elementary school. So 
Um, and, and a project is the same way. We don't want to ever say you got to be on a project because that doesn't tell the kid anything about how to improve. We want to be able to say, for this project, you showed great collaboration skills. For this project, you showed uh, that you understood fair the content that you were supposed to. For this project. So the project, we think about it as not as something we grade, but the project is an opportunity for the kids to demonstrate their skills and knowledge, which we capture. So for assessment for us, we really focus on those 21st century skills, and we develop rubrics around them, and we try to separate, we try to separate out each of those distinct skills. So when we put a grade in for an assignment in our, in our schools, they, a paper, like I said, might have four or five grades in it, or a project might have six or seven different grades in it. Well, thank you, uh, Paul, for being with us today. We really enjoyed um, receiving some of your uh, knowledge and wisdom uh, throughout the project-based learning, um, all of your experience. So thank you for being with us. I'm happy to help, and I hope anyone who watches this um, takes a leap of faith and gives project-based learning a shot. Okay. All right. That wraps up this session of Journeys in Podcasting on Inquiry. Coming up in the next session, we're going to interview Ron Berger of Expeditionary Learning, and we'll be talking about formative assessments and student critiques. And next up, please join us to talk with Tim Burns from EduCare. We'll talk to him about mindfulness in the classroom and learning. And then we have another uh, podcast we're planning on iPads and literacy. And we don't have, we have a lot of in-house research we can do, but we don't really have um, good connections um, beyond. So if anyone out there wants to talk to us about how they're using iPads and literacy, please contact us on our um, Facebook page, which is Journeys in Podcasting. You can also find us on iTunes. Where else can they find us? Uh, we you can go ahead and uh, contact us on our page, which is called uh, LM Projects slash Journeys in Podcasting on Weeks.com. Um, Chris Davis, I can be found on Twitter at Chris Davis CNG. And, and I'm Diego, I can be found on Twitter as uh, techie underscore boy. Thanks for listening and don't hesitate to contact. The whole intention of this podcast is to make connections beyond with people working on, on similar things that we are. Okay, take care. Thank you.